Rickman Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And we're talking to a cult survivor today. She's Hollywood royalty and true royalty. And she was a member of the notorious slave cult Nexium. India Oxenberg is on Talk is Jericho. And she's going to be talking about her new documentary about her experiences in Nexium. Uh, it's available now. It's called Seduced Inside the Nexium Cult. And it's exclusively on the Stars channel. Very, very well worth watching. It's an unbelievable look at the dark world of Nexium, and India is here today to share some of those details with us. She explains how she got caught up in Nexium, what founder and leader Keith Raniere was like, how she let them uh, literally brand Keith's initials on her hip with a cauterizing pen, and what ultimately led to her escape. She talks about how instrumental her mom, actress uh, Catherine Oxenberg, was in her leaving Nexium and has been in India's recovery. Andy was also in court last fall at Keith's sentencing and talks about why she needed to be there to share her experiences with the court and how she thinks her appearance impacted Keith's sentence. India's story is both scary and inspiring, as you're about to hear. So listen to India now and then check out the new documentary that she produced on Stars, Seduced Inside the Nexium Cult. But here we go. India Oxenberg and her incredible true story about surviving the Nexium Cult starts now. On Talk is Jericho. So uh, thanks to Dave Schrader from uh, Beyond the Darkness. He always hooks me up with uh, amazing guests. And he told me about the story of India Oxenberg. And it is just an incredible story about uh, kind of based on the documentary that you produced that I just finished watching literally minutes ago, which is called Seduce. And it is the uh, the um, I guess what's the the, the, the semi title inside the Nixium cult, and this is an incredible story because I think the reason why I really took to it is is like you said you weren't like a lost soul or searching for answers or searching for the truth. It kind of something just kind of happened to you, unbeknownst to you until it was until you were in the thick of it. So true. I mean, nobody goes looking for cults unless they're trying to investigate them and bust them open. But even as, you know, my 19-year-old self was just looking for structure. I mean, who isn't looking for structure when they're 19? Right. I wasn't I wasn't a broken human being, that's for sure. And I don't believe that I don't really think anybody's really broken, to be honest. I think mm. sometimes we're just more vulnerable and we're more susceptible to certain things. Well, let's talk a little bit about your background, first of all, because you're actually royalty, Hollywood royalty and legit <laughs> royalty. <laughs> it's so funny to even think about that. But yes, um, my grandmother is a princess of Serbia. <laughs> so <laughs> of amazing. Serbia. And um, I'm really sad because of COVID. I haven't been able to see her in a while, but we got to profile her in the series, which was amazing. And she's amazing in it too. Yeah, she's very yeah. cool. She's much needed comic relief. <laughs> yeah, she seems like a like like you said. She's actually listed as Prince Princess Elizabeth, I believe. That's her full her full name, like on her passport. No joke, is her royal highness Princess Elizabeth of Yugoslavia. Like, can you imagine having to do a bubble <laughs> test with that? <laughs> it's like there's no room. No kidding. But no, she's amazing. So she's actually a princess, and then your mother is Catherine Oxenberg. Correct. Who's very famous actress from Dynasty? I, I, I googled all of the stuff that she had done. So you came from a pretty solid background, obviously. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely unusual, that's for sure. But it was solid. I mean, I've always been surrounded by love. I have a really 
great large family and you know we're 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 scattered all over the country but we're close and so i i didn't come from a broken home unusual yes but mm. not not broken and i was just looking for a way to carve my own path in life and and i think sometimes when you grow up with very prominent strong personalities people who are you know well developed in themselves it can feel like what's wrong with me why don't i have this shit figured out like mm. why am i so behind but i was also only 19 and looking at my parents who had achieved such great success at a young age and was wondering like what's wrong with me that i haven't figured this out yet mm. and so i i went to naxiam with my mother actually to an intro presentation and the two of us we're looking at it very innocently like oh this could be a great way for us to bond and get to know each other well after you know 5 days together mm-hmm. and i was 19 so i was you know coming out of those tumultuous teenage years where you like despise your parents and just right. kind of en- en- entering entering the the stage of respect and admiration and wanting to be like them but also feeling that push and pull of wanting to individuate um so unfortunately for us we didn't see that nexium had already kind of identified those weaknesses because that's mm. that's what they do they target people in order to see how they could use them to benefit the company we didn't know that we were just looking at it like you know any kind of consumer taking a <laughs> t- what, like buying a product or taking what, a- what was what was it advertised as like a seminar or yeah it was so I'll explain it like this. So there's Nexium which was the overarching company right. and then underneath underneath it there was all these little sub companies one of which was called Executive Success Programs and that's kind of their consumer front product. And they sold it as an executive seminar. So ways to improve your business, way to improve communication, ways to make a mo- more cohesive, you know, environment for your home. So mm. they were kind of casting a broad net of people who could afford or who were interested in personal growth. Gotcha. Gotcha. So that's kind of how how they sucked you in for lack of a better term. Yeah. So you went for 5 days and then what what happens after that? Well, after that I I was approached. <laughs> it's it's so weird to even say, because the way that I saw it versus the way that I see it now is so different because in other words i think i was targeted to be a coach because of my my age and because of my susceptibilities at that time but they approached both my mother and i and they're like oh you should really look into the coaching program and my mom was like no mm-hmm. <laughs> she you know she has kids she has a career but i was looking for something so when they told me that this was going to be you know, my version of a practical mba i thought Oh my god, this is exactly what I need. I'm missing all of these skills. I need help. Can you provide the structure and the information to get me to the next level of my life? And so I was more open. And I went down the coaching path which then ultimately became like a full-time job without payment. And so I was investing or I'm doing air quotes, investing yeah. in what I thought was, you know, going to be a solid education for myself and an alternative for sure but mm. education nonetheless right so you you were investing with your time even though you weren't getting paid yeah. you you were learning skills that you could you know use to better yourself for sure let's talk a little bit right about about Keith Renary right Renary yeah, yeah. Keith Renary whatever yeah, you yeah, want yeah. to call him. 
<laughs> so, but he was kind of, obviously he was the leader of this organization. And when you first get started in all of these things in the coaching, are you, are you having uh, meetings with him? Have you met him yet? Is he kind of hard to get to? Yes. Gotcha. So they do all of that on purpose. He's kind of like Oz in the Wizard of Oz. Like oh, you can't, gotcha. you can't get to him until you actually go to Albany, because apparently he doesn't travel, which is also bullshit. Because we know that he fled to Mexico. So right. that <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. not true. But you know, he's you know, he's being posed as this monk, as this renunciate, as this guy who you know is posting up in upstate New York, facing the cold weather to improve humanity and you don't meet him until you've gone through a substantial amount of curriculum indoctrination Hmm. um so by the time i met him i was in my last uh five days of their level one course which is 16 days total so i went there i was introduced to him i was pretty unimpressed because i wasn't really going to nexium for keith like he didn't there was that wasn't the appeal. Oh, take courses from the smartest man in the world. Like mm-hmm. I didn't care. I was there for myself, or at least that's what I thought. So how long were you? How long were you in Nexium before you, you finally met him? Well, only a couple of months. But that oh, gotcha. meeting was yeah. That meeting was brief. It was just sort of like, oh, you're here in Albany. Here's the founder. And because you had to travel back and forth, right? Because you were in LA and they were based in Albany, so you would have to go back and forth there. Yeah, it wasn't until five years. Of me being in, yeah, five years of me being in Nexium that I was instructed to move from LA to Albany. So that's a long time of sure grooming, is. grooming and indoctrination. And that was one of the things I really wanted to get across in the docu series is that this stuff doesn't happen overnight, and this is, you know, this takes time. And and these are people who are very aware of that, and they're they're invested in that because they're that's how these groups work. They want you in, they want you deeply in, not just on the periphery. So when you're talking about those five years before you, you finally moved to, to Albany, because there's so much to talk about. And it's, it's such an unbelievable, like you said, that they, they're indoctrinating you. They're, they're playing the big picture, long-term game. Yes, you Cause got like it. you said, if it's five years, that that's, that's a slow burn to yes. slowly, I guess, brainwash change, you for change your mind. Term. Yeah, change it your is. Mind. It's, right. it's brainwashing. But I'm, and I know that sounds totally weird and sci-fi because people are like, that's not true. There can't be brainwashing, but there is. And we've seen it historically happen, you know, to governments, happen to large movements, happen to high control groups. I think we don't expect it as much in, a, in our own backyard. I think a lot of the time in America, we don't think that we are susceptible to cults because we're kind of distanced from them or we think, Oh, those are just girls dancing around wild and white dresses in the wilderness. And it's like, no, that's not what we're talking about. (laughs) We're talking about updated machines that are actually starting to use technology even more so now to recruit people. And also too, like, like the, the initial thing is always some kind of whack job, but that's the only people that join cults anyways, like we spoke about earlier. That's not the case. No, it's not. And oftentimes, like what we saw with Nexium, it was really high functioning people who were being changed. Like the people who went into Nexium went in with an open heart. They wanted to improve themselves. They wanted to do well. They were not the same people once they had left. They had been changed. And I think that's one of the scarier things for people to recognize and why 
it's so difficult for people to leave is because they have to confront that in themselves and they have to be willing to look at where they were fooled, not that they are fools. And that was my hope for the series was that it would take away some of those stigmas. So in the five years that, that you kind of were, were still going back and forth between LA and, and Albany, when you look back on it now, what were some of the things that were, that were kind of instilling this, this control on you? A lot of guilt, actually. That's a really good question. And I, I remember feeling just so guilty about saying no to them for things that they, that they needed. Like, oh, we need you to staff this intensive, even if it conflicted with a family birthday. Like there were just things that they were always trying to get us to prove ourselves to the organization over our other attachments in our lives that should have been a major red flag. And it just wasn't for me at the time. And why wasn't it a red flag? Because I thought that that's what it took to be dedicated to something. Oh, I see. And, you know, I thought that this was me growing up and becoming distant from the things that were holding me back. I was so confused and I didn't see how that was actually wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting from reading about cults. And I remember even when I was, when I was a kid, my parents Amway was, was a oh, thing. Yes. And I'm not sure if that was a cult per se, but it definitely had no, cultish. It's still running. It's and I just recently found out that there is a subcult within Amway that wow. I just found this out like a week ago. So it's still functioning and it's very similar to Nexium. Like they have their consumer front and their merch. Right. And then underneath is all this nefarious activity, probably with the core group. Great word nefarious, by the way. <laughs> but 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 my, my point was like, and they, they didn't stay in too too long because I remember my mom saying like, it's just weird. Like there's some of the people would come for the parties, like the heads uh, of the party and, and very yeah. forceful and strange, but you didn't really know how, I guess crazy is not the right word, but how, how, how intense it was, how involved it was until you got up those different levels. Yeah. Same thing I've heard about Scientology, same thing I've heard, you know, about all with these Nixium. different things mm -hmm. with Nixium as well, especially you, you see that in the, in the, in the documentary series where you don't even realize it until it's too late. And by then you're kind of too far gone to, to go back. Right. Right. You're too compromised. And I think that's one of the things that was hard for me to realize when I left was how many times they were testing me and testing my loyalty and how many times I actually gave them information about myself that was used against me. And that that's that's something that's difficult to recover from because it really does affect your ability to trust people to trust authority and so even when i was coming out i was still finding myself falling into traps because i was so used to a certain way of looking at the world that i had to kind of like catch up to mm. reality and and i was behind i like almost kind of stunted and <laughs> this is like a side, not to get too jokey or anything, but when I was in Albany, I eventually moved down to New York City because I couldn't find work up there. And I was searching desperately for a job. And I ended up working in a restaurant in the, in the Lower East Side, um, the East Village specifically. Right. And I remember my coworkers teasing me about Kimmy Schmidt. 
And there, like, there's a there's a series on Netflix called Kimmy Schmidt that was created by Tina Fey, and I had not seen it obviously at the time. And they would tease me and be like, "Oh, you're just like Kimmy Schmidt." And I was like, "What?" Then cut to a couple months later, I moved back to California, and I'm you know at my mom's house for the first time in ages, and I decided to turn it on for some comedic relief, and I'm like, "What?" I am Kimmy Schmidt. <laughs> I was just like so humiliated and embarrassed that I had missed this whole like pop culture thing that I was now popping into New York City <laughs> from a bunker, which it wasn't really a bunker, but it right. kind of felt like that. And so like there's just been a lot of moments for me where I've I've had to like laugh about it too. As much as it is difficult, like you have to find some humor in it. Well, absolutely. Especially now that you're out the other side, you know what I yeah. mean? Something you mentioned earlier, I want to go back to is the collateral, what that means before you explain that and how Nexium used that against you and everybody else that you knew in the cult. Let me take a quick second to remind everyone that Valentine's Day is approaching fast and make sure you hook up your special someone with Steven Singer's brand new deep navy blue sparkling 24 karat gold dip twinkle twinkle rose. Time is running out because the new color sells out every single year. And this one is so stunning and sparkly that it's going fast. Just imagine on Valentine's Day when she opens up the really cool gift box and out slides this beautiful blue rose trimmed in gold. I'm talking the color of the sky just before the sun sets when you start to see all the stars sparkling up in the sky. Yeah, that's right. That breathtaking sparkly blue color. It's breathtaking, isn't it? So go now to see this real rose deeply dipped in pure 24 karat gold with petals in this unique dazzling blue that mimics the stars in the night sky. It's exclusively available at Steven Singer Jewelers. Real jewelers, real roses, really dipped in pure 24 karat gold with a real lifetime guarantee. It's always the number one Valentine's Day gift and it lasts forever. It also comes with your own free personal love note and it ships fast and free to the real love of your life. It also ships fast and free to mom, grandma, your daughter, your aunt, whoever fits the description. Whoever you want to say, I love you, and I'm so lucky to have you in my life, send them the Twinkle Twinkle Rose from Steven Singer. Steven's famous roses start at only $59. Only $59. And you can see the whole collection and place your order at IHateStevenSinger.com. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Something that you mentioned earlier that that I found very interesting was they kept requesting collateral is the word they used. Uh, Explain what that is and why they wanted you to do that. Okay, so, and that, and I just want to make it clear, that wasn't what was required in ESP. That was required in DOS. And DOS is the subset of the secret women's sorority. DOS is is the cult within the cult, like you said. Exactly, exactly. The cult within the cult that was, you know, sold to us as a woman empowerment group or exclusively women coaching women in an intensified form, like having a really aggressive personal trainer who doesn't let you back down. And so I was like, sign me up. I'm, I'm a little bit extreme in that way. And I like those types of things. Right. <laughs> and so I was already like, Oh my God, that's exactly what I need. I don't want to back up out of my word. I just want somebody to push me to where I can go. And I trusted these people. So I said yes to that. And within that secret sorority, they required collateral and collateral is just blackmail in layman's terms. And so it was, information about you or your loved ones that would be damaging to your reputation, damaging to people who you loved. And sometimes, and most often it was made up because 
we're not talking about a, about a bunch of women who are deviants with a whole bunch of secrets. We're mm-hmm. talking about p- women who are going to, you know, personal growth to improve themselves and probably 50% are vegetarian or vegans or whatever. Right, 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 right. And so it's like not a whole bunch of, I didn't have a lot of secrets. So I was even just making things up and, and handing them over, trusting that this wasn't, this information was going to stay put as long as I kept this secret to myself and I didn't expose it or share it with anybody. And so I believed that. What I didn't realize was the more collateral we gave, the more compromise we really were, the more compromise we became and the less likely we would be able to leave to the point where we couldn't leave because mm-hmm. it would mean hurting the people we loved most or hurting ourselves. Basically, if you if you left, they would release this information that yes. you were molested by your father or whatever. Exactly. And meanwhile, that's not even true. You, right. for example, just made that up just for yeah. And I and I and I'm. It's something that has been probably the most difficult thing to talk about is the collateral because it's just so screwed up. I mean, to take things that people care about and love most in order to trap them or enslave them is just really beyond cruel and that was part of what Keith created and he's not original in that I mean there's a lot of a lot of groups out there that do use similar tactics yeah it was just something that I had to come to terms with and then also realize how I wanted to handle it and that meant speaking to my family sharing the things that I had shared and that was really hard even even though it was fake a lot of it it was hard to talk about because I put people that I love in danger. And I, I hate that. Well, it's also very degrading. I think is one of the words that you might've been looking for because they're talking to you about, you know, and you discussed it at length in the documentary about having to take, you know, naked pictures to send to Keith or, or we have to talk about Alison Mack as well, which is yeah. another subject, but she was kind of like your boss underneath Keith, right? Yeah, and, and within DOS, they referred to it as a master master right yeah. dynamic. And so she was, in that context, my master. And, and that was something that was really also very uncomfortable and weird as hell to, to try to wrap my head around. But I remember they had a justification and a reasoning for everything. So even if you felt uncomfortable about the words master-slave, they would tell you that was on purpose to provoke you in order to distance yourself from the label or like whatever, you know, bullshit answer that they were going to get. Right, right, right. And, or the collateral was there to back your own words so that you wouldn't back out of a commitment or something that was challenging. So they had semi-logical answers for things that felt irrational or uncomfortable. So, um, and that, that, that's, you actually would have to call her and this is and just, just for people like I used to watch Smallville from time. So Alison Mack was in Smallville, a very successful actress once again, how the hell did she end up in this cult and now spending probably the rest of her life in jail as well? But that's another very successful person, a famous person who is in this thing, which probably probably helped to bring you in. Oh, well, if she's in it, then it must be okay. It definitely lessened my guard mm. because I was, you know, I looked at, I wasn't friends with Allison before she recruited me to DOS. I actually remember just kind of seeing her in the community and she was kind of um, always super bubbly, really energetic. She was excelling within Nexium, and she was becoming the person that I thought I wanted to become in that group. And so I looked up to her in that way and I was kind of intimidated 
by her. <laughs> but she also kind of reminded me of like those overly excited theater kids <laughs> and so and so I was kind of like eh, I don't know about you but eh, we'll see and it wasn't until she really approached me more aggressively about DOS that I opened up to her and I was telling her like I was in a really dark place I was feeling really lost and vulnerable I wasn't excelling in Nexium, and that's right when she proposed this woman's group DOS this sorority to me and that's was the beginning of a life-changing decision. And so DOS was was basically a uh, a pyramid type of a thing where where Keith's on top, then he's got the first line DOS masters, and then you were yes. one of the second line DOS masters, and then for a while you had some slaves. So you had to refer to Allison as master. Yes. And then your slaves would have to refer to you as master. Yeah. And I couldn't get down with that. That was so weird for me. I was like, any way that we could figure out how to work around the discomfort of the master slave terminology, we did like we used M as a way to kind of communicate with each other because it was just so odd. And it was so hard for us to, to be okay with that because it wasn't okay. And that was still part of us that was intact that wasn't totally indoctrinated by you know, the group, the group, the part that was resisting is what I mean. You had some other kind of rules and regulations that you had to follow. Uh, one of them was your diet. Yeah. So explain that. Well, I'm not someone who ever dieted before. <laughs> I just, that's not really me. I always played sports, so it wasn't part of the, it right. wasn't part of the, the deal. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I remember Allison first started and this is once again another example of that slow drip and how things escalate because at first she asked me simply have you ever dieted have you ever counted calories and I was like no I don't <laughs> count calories I just exercise like right part of life You're in shape exactly and, yeah right. and so she was like why don't you try tracking your calories and then tell me how much you eat on a regular basis so I tried that reported back then from there she said why don't you try reducing some of the calories maybe try 1200 a day so i was like okay like it those those seemed reasonable she was telling me it was going to help me build character and discipline and you know work so that i wouldn't be so impulsive and things like that she was Mm -hmm. giving me all these antidotes that seemingly seemed good and things that i might want to build in myself cut to we're going to give you an extreme restricted diet which means you can't exceed 500 calories a day and you have to ask permission for every calorie that you're going to drink or eat and calculate it here on this chat. So my entire day is now being consumed with what I can eat and what I can't eat and when I can eat it. And if I'm being precise enough to report. So there's very little time to think about anything else when you're in a starving, when you're in starvation. And I'm, I'm sure that you can relate to this as a professional athlete, because I'm sure there's things that you've had to do that were really extreme. And it really does take over your mindset, like you're only focused on your weight and your food consumption. And it's crazy. Well, especially when you were uh, only allowed 500 calories a day. I mean, that's nothing. That's nothing. That's basically a coffee and a muffin if you're lucky. Right. So. I was having to, and I'm a cook, like I'm naturally a foodie. So I was trying to figure out how I could work within this 500 calories to make it 
interesting or mm-hmm. or feel substantial. So, you know, you're adding spices, adding spray oil, whatever you can do to make it like feel better. So that was another one of the techniques that they used for mind control that actually a lot of survivors of domestic abuse have reported that one of the first ways that people try to control people is through food. Hmm. Because once again, it's all about control, about being submissive. And this was, is this Keith wanting all you guys to be slim, skinny? Yes. That's what he's attracted to? Yeah. We didn't know that either. So we're being told that this is for us and our, you know, own personal discipline. And we have no idea that this is literally just for Keith's sexual desires. Which is interesting because you see too, he's very kissy. He's kissing everybody in the lips. Everyone's kissing him. You guys are all kissing him. And I'm making a little bit of a joke here. Like it's it's not like it's freaking Brad Pitt or something. It's just some normal kind of dweeby looking guy with bad hair. I hate his hair. I just wanted to (laughs) to cut it. It's like, oh, it's terrible. <laughs> but that's the control that he's expanding upon you. Yeah. And and that translates to, you know, restricted sleep, restricted food, restricted exposure to other people outside of the group. It's just one more level of control that makes adding other more severe levels of control become normalized. Now, how was it for you? And once again, you, you, you talk about it in depth in the film. But you mentioned, you know, having to get thin and skinny for Keith's, you know, sexual, you know, attractive. That's what he likes. So you had to have sexual experiences with him, as did pretty much all of the members of DOS at one point, right? Yeah, a lot. A lot of them. I couldn't tell you how many, because one of the things that we were not allowed to do was talk to each other about any of the experiences that we had with Keith. So I didn't know that while I was being abused, other women were being abused, too. Uh, And similarly to me. Um, And so that was one of the ways that he was able to keep his secret going was just kind of siloing people. Nobody knew for sure what everyone else was doing. No, that's kind of like very mobster. Well, once again, though, like you said, you know, now you're very, very much indoctrinated into the call. But even when something like that's happening, it's basically, you know, a form of rape in a lot of ways. And you even talk, it, it never, it's not something you ever feel good about or get anything out of deep down inside. Isn't your animal instincts like this is wrong. I should probably not be doing this and get the fuck out of here or. Yeah. But at that point, I mean, your, your intuition and like your connection to, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, your soul or your spirit or yourself has been kind of dwindling over time so it's hard to connect to that when you're in that state of fear especially and so I remember there were many times where I would say like whenever we're together I feel this horrible feeling inside my chest and like earnestly sharing with him thinking that maybe he would help me figure out what was going on or why I felt so uncomfortable and he would just turn to me and say that's your problem Hmm. and so I actually believed that I really did believe that this was my problem, that maybe I would never feel good with sex. Maybe I would never feel good with an intimacy or a partner. I thought maybe I was totally asexual. Mm -hmm. Like I just didn't, I didn't know what to think because I was being taught to believe that my instincts were wrong. They're taking away all of your self-worth as well. Yeah. And you, you come out of these things and that's why I have so much respect for anyone who has left either a domestic 
abuse situation or a high control group because the amount that it takes to leave and to start to look at what what your life really was versus what you were right. taught to think it was takes a lot of courage. Like once again, this is there's so much to think about here. And, and I know. once again, like the fact that you made this documentary is amazing because it's all out there and it must have been very difficult to do, but also very important. And I'm sure that's probably the reason why you wanted to, to do this. Yeah, it was. I mean, there are many reasons I wanted to do it. And there are many reasons why I didn't mm. want to do it. <laughs> in the be- in the beginning, too, I, w- I just wasn't right. ready for a while to talk about this stuff. So I took some time and I began to write. And that felt a lot safer and controlled. And then when I was approached by Cecilia Packin and Bal Lesnar, and I saw their track record of documentaries that they had made, and I just felt like, there couldn't be a better place for me to share my story and have the opportunity to take my life back mm-hmm. into my own hands because the media had kind of, you know, gone wild with it. And I was just branded sex slave cult right, girl right. all over Google. And I was like, how am I going to come back from this? Like, how am I going to, what am I going to do? Change my name, run away to the mountains, like ditch my life. That's not an option, although I had thought about it. But once again, like your name is very unique. It's not hard to, it's not like your name is, you know, Deborah Jones or something. It's it's pretty hard to forget (laughs) India Oxenberg. (laughs) I know it's weird. It's so weird. And it's like, at first I, I, I remember talking to my then boyfriend, now fiance. I was like, what do I do? I changed, should I change my name? And he was like, no, no, no. Now I love my name. I feel very proud of my name now, but, it took a while. And we'll talk about some of that once you leave, because there's some very interesting things that happened to you. But but just as we're talking about some of the things, the submissive things, and once again, there's we talked about the naked pictures, and they want close-ups of your you know your private parts, and you're getting paddled, and all these different things. But the one that really stands out to me uh, is is the, is the branding, and that mm-hmm. one. That's when you watch that part. Just just thinking about it, like I have a lot of tattoos, and and. You know, it's a different thing completely. This is actually getting branded like like a cow, like a cattle, like a piece of like a, you know. So explain explain that to us. Okay. So, yes, it is incredibly different from tattoos. I have a couple tattoos myself and I literally laughed when I got the tattoos because they were so just not right. painful compared to the brand and we didn't have any anesthesia no numbing cream no nothing and it was done with a cauterizing pen actually like not the cattle prod like not the cattle prod that you imagine on a ranch where like a cow is being because that that is what a lot of people imagine but this is more precise this is this is something that was done by a doctor actually who was inside of the group. It's actually a pen that is, you know, a thousand degrees or whatever, and they draw the symbol on you. But just, just to go back to why, why did you have to get this yeah. brand and what was the situation surrounding it? So the brand was only spoken to us when we were recruited initially. And I remember Allison kind of like glazing over it real quick. And she said something like, yeah, there's going to be a brand or a tattoo. It's real. it's going to be really small, but it will be something that will help to ensure that you guys are loyal and pledging to the group, kind of like a pledge, like pledging yeah. in a right, sorority right, right, or a fraternity. Right. And so that's where my mind went. And I was like, okay, I can handle that. Like, yeah, sure. Is that, is that, is that the worst of it? I had no idea what that was actually going to entail. So cut to 
you know, months later and hundreds of articles of collateral that you've already submitted, sleep deprivation, calorie deprivation. And we're in January 2017, I believe, and where I was the first woman to be branded by Dr. Danielle Roberts. And I just remember that day, like, kind of feeling like I was out of my body. And, and I said to Allison, like, are you sure we have to do this? I remember just like one moment where I, I questioned it. And she said, yes. Like, the, the option to say no mm. was not there. It's anymore. mandatory, yeah. Yeah, and that had been removed. And then in order to make it kind of tolerable, I think the women, including myself, we had to imagine that this was going to be positive bonding experience for us, that this was going to be something that was going to draw us together, like Navy SEALs going and getting a tattoo. Like we were, we were going to do something tough and challenging and it was going to prove our loyalty. And that was kind of the mindset that I had transitioned into away from being terrified. And it took about 30 minutes to complete. That's when I realized that this was going to be a lot larger than I had thought. And we were told that the brand was a symbol of the elements. We were never, ever told that they were Keith Raniere's initials until afterwards. And you can't see it until they pointed out the documentary because they kind of put it on this way. But if you look on the side, you can see the K and, and the R. Exactly. And once again, this is with a cauterizing pen basically torturing you as they are, like you said, this is not the size of a quarter. It's more the size of your hand or, you know, your palm of your hand. Right. Like your palm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So once you get that, I mean, how long does it take before the pain starts to go away? Because you, like you said, you had no anesthesia. This is legit torture. No. Yeah. This, this took, I mean, at the, when it was happening, I think because the nerves had been burned, I didn't feel until it hit certain ner- like nerve endings close to my bone and my hip. And then you would get a jolt of, of pain, like a nerve spasm almost. And so it took a couple months for it to heal fully. I, I think it was so good if I refer to my table. Yeah. So about three months where it wasn't raw. Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. like the, like the scar had kind of solidified or whatever. Yeah. I know healed and solidified. Yeah. And it, it was we- like a couple weeks where it was really sensitive, very oozy. And I remember having to like clean it in a, in mm-hmm. the shower and just like watch this plasma fall off of it. It was disgusting. And on top of it, we were told that we had to send photographs of it progressively healing to Danielle. And we didn't know that those were also going to Keith. Like he was tracking us like a human science experiment. That's unbelievable. And uh, there's, there's a very moving scene in the movie, if, if you call it that. But when you went to the doctor afterwards to see if you could basically get it, you know, the plastic surgeon to get it removed. And he was saying that it would take up to a year to try and do it properly. Yeah. I wasn't willing to do that. I had already, I felt like I had already done enough. I mean, going back and working with the FBI for nine months, every week, every, every couple of weeks, I just couldn't imagine also having to go through surgery over and over again. You got a nice tattoo. I did. I, I, got, I ended up tattooing it. Instead. That's great. Well, it's also like a battle scar too for you to, you know, totally. you can, you can own it now, like you mentioned, let's talk about how you, how you left and kind of the, you know, the, the breaking down of the entire cult. Cause like you said, even in, in the documentary, it took a while, even when Keith is up on charges and in jail, you're still, you know, loyal to him. It took a long time. And I mean, I wish that I, I wish I could say that it, it happened like that. And that all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, 
the glass broke and I saw the truth. Right. And that's just not how it was for me at all. <laughs> it was stages of seeing the truth and, and kind of coming to terms with reality and in, in my own pace. And I worked with a deprogrammer after I had left that my mom had introduced me to. And she helped me tremendously to just re-engage my critical thinking because it had been so tampered with. When you're in a group like that, oftentimes you're taught to think circularly. So you're in a closed loop of thinking and you can't actually think outside of the logic of the group. So the deprogrammer, even though that sounds super weird, helps you to get back to your to get back to yourself and also to your ability to think more logically and objectively. So she she did that for me. I um I left in February Keith of 2000, 2018. I left Albany, went to New York City. Keith was arrested in March. Allison was arrested in April. All of that time I'm trying to keep a job and it's getting crazy because mm. the paparazzi are chasing me around. And I'm like, oh my God, mm. please get out of my underwear drawer. Leave me alone. <laughs> I'm just trying to survive. And I at that point wasn't really communicating with my mom that only started to open up that summer after those arrests. And then we began to have an open dialogue again, which was really important to me and also really challenging for both of us. Because the whole, the whole time your mom was trying to get you out of there. Yeah. And my mom was fighting for me and they were telling me that she was a psychopath and that she was trying to hurt me. And I had a lot of distrust for my mom. And so I, we've had to work double time to, to rebuild that and get back to being teammates again, which has been wonderful. But because that's another, that's it, another, it was hard. That's another tendency of the cult to try and separate you from, from the ones that you love and family. family. Right? Yeah. yeah. Anyone who can challenge the loyalty to the group is someone who is, can, would be considered a threat to a group gotcha. like that. And obviously my loyalty was to my family, but it was being, compromise and it was being really tested and and for a long time i fell deeper into the group before i i really got out um so i i got out that summer i ended up leaving new york city moving back to california um and starting to kind of reconnect with my family and start to heal and take care of myself <laughs> and do normal things <laughs> nice things be be home and that and that was hard because as I was separating myself more from the cult and from New York I was experiencing a lot of PTSD and 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 memories and things that would just like come to me in the night or panic attacks and I was kind of getting back to feeling again but feeling again mm. comes with memories and I think anybody who's experienced any kind of trauma knows that Memories can be fractured and, and disjointed and that they can come in a wave. All of a sudden you can be triggered and you're like, oh my God, how did I forget that? And you have the memory back and it feels like it's happening. And so I was going through a lot of that for a couple months as well as working with the FBI. I can only imagine how bad that would be. And um, just, just, I want to ask you, was, was Keith like, was he uh, like a like a godlike figure to you? Was he a father figure? Was he a romantic figure? All of the above? None of the above? He was like a mentor, like a like I was his student and he was a teacher, and I thought he was my friend. I really believed that he was my friend. I didn't feel so romantic with him, 
I think I had to kind of play that gotcha. role a little more just to, to make sure I wasn't going to upset anybody. But I, I didn't, I never wanted to be his girlfriend. Like that wasn't ever what I aspired to. And there were plenty of people who really wanted that. Mm-hmm. So when you mentioned that Keith got arrested, what kind of fi- finally brought the Nexium down? Oh, so many brave people. I mean, oh. there were there were there were so many people who left even before I did that started this wave of bringing Nexium to justice, and and a and a lot of that was spearheaded by my mother and in, in the media, especially in the most recent years, and the and the the defectors that she worked with who are just incredibly strong, and so. It took a lot. It took a lot of people. It took a, a a government investigation. I mean, it took years for this man to be held accountable because he has been doing this for decades. Well, and he also had something we, we have to mention, too, is he had the funding from the Bronfman sisters who are the heirs to the Seagram's liquor you know, fortune, right? Exactly. I mean, without... Without their money, I don't think he would have been nearly as successful. But they have hundreds of millions of dollars, and that's kind of what he was siphoning it from, right? Yeah, and and they bankrolled all of his endeavors. Hmm. So when you kept saying that that you were working with the FBI, what exactly is it that you were doing? Because there's a point in the movie as well where you could be brought up on charges potentially. That was a, that was a, a theory and, and an issue too. Yeah, and that was a really scary time for me because I didn't know and I had a lot of uncertainty about what what was going to happen to me Right. In, in this whole situation. And thank God that that decision of victim and perpetrator is not my choice and that that is the government's choice to figure out based on tons of evidence where they draw the line. And they drew the line from first line slaves to, up towards Keith and then below that was more or less victims of this lie that stemmed from Keith. So the, f- the first line of, of the DOS masters and Keith were eligible and the second line yes. were not, right? Because of what they knew gotcha. and what they concealed from us. Um, so we were tricked into saying yes to something. It's interesting too, because you had your slaves that, that they disappeared when all the stuff went down, but there was, and you never wanted to do it. But if you had participated in their branding, you might have been, you know, in big trouble. And I think that's exactly, and I know that's why my mom stepped in because there was a line that she knew that if I crossed, gotcha. it could be too dangerous for me and I might not be able to come back from that. My mom was able to see that and I was not. Yeah. And so, and what I mean by working with the FBI is I was a cooperating witness amongst many others who also helped. And uh, at the last minute, I was pulled from testifying because Lauren Salzman, Nancy Salzman's daughter, who is the CEO of um, ESP and Nexium, she testified and she was a first line DOS slave. And so that kind of let me off the hook to having to be cross-examined by Keith's lawyers and all of the other things that my friends had to go through in order to get on the other side of it. Mm. So I got lucky there. So Keith is guilty of all the charges and i think he's uh sentenced just recently to 120 years in jail mm-hmm. allison max is 40 years bronfman's got seven years whatever it may be yeah allison hasn't been charged yet though gotcha oh gotcha so we're wait we're waiting for that i actually went to keith's sentencing um it was in october during the press tour of seduced 
And I had no idea that the timing of his sentence was going to fall in that time. And so I was like, I got to go. I'll be back in 24 (laughs) hours. Like I need to go speak and then I'll see you guys when I get home. But that, that was really intense. And I mean, I was one of four, what, 15 other people who spoke that day. And the judge started off by saying that he was going to give him 58 years, but because his, his lack of empathy or remorse, he ended up giving him 150 after everybody spoke. Wow. So, so, so you guys actually went to, the, a lot. you went to the courtroom prior to the sentencing and told your story? No, I did it on that day. So how they do it is um, when they're sentenced, when, when somebody is sentenced, people have the right to share their victim impact statements. Okay. And that that's what I did um, with a group of other men and women. Um, some of them were remote through video, but I felt like for me, because I didn't testify, at trial, I needed that closure for myself. I just needed to say my piece and walk the F out of there and say, you're saying, and I'm gone. Right, 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 right. And that felt really good. And I honestly, like that night was probably one of the first nights that I, I slept and I wasn't afraid. That Because you knew that the monster was, was gone, right? Yeah. It just like, it, it still makes me teary now because like, I didn't know what to expect from that experience. I just knew I was like, I'm just going to do it. Like, mm. just, just go. Just buy. It's like when you have to buy the ticket and take the plunge because right. you know that you might chicken out. <laughs> I was like, okay, India, like, just go there and get it done. It probably helped, though. Like you said, you mentioned your friends, all the people that, that survived this with you. It actually reminds me a lot of, of the Jeffrey Epstein documentary that I watched a few months ago where those survivors became very close friends and were testifying as well. Yeah, they gave me a lot of strength. Mm-hmm. Do you still keep in touch with them and talk to them? And, some of them, yeah. yeah. Yeah, actually some of them, because of what we've gone through, have become my closest friends. Some of them I've left behind, but there are a couple who are really, we're really close. When you see like people, because Nexium is not completely disbanded, right? They're still, it's still limping along. <laughs> I like that description. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd like to think that. Yes. But yes, there are still loyalists. To, ne- to Keith and to Nexium, people who still believe that his teachings and the company is good. And that just makes me really sad because yeah. I remember when I felt that strongly like they have, but that, that was, you know, before this whole investigation and the closure and the sentencing. So it's hard for me to believe that they're still believing, but I also know how difficult it is to change your beliefs about something that you're so devoted to so I can understand them a little bit better but I also just feel sad like they're missing out on their lives Mm -hmm. because they're still trying to defend this guy you mentioned earlier like when you when when this was going down you were kind of no pun intended branded as the like sex slave like you said cult girl and you mentioned that yeah not a good look right right not a good it was hard for you to get an apartment or to to get to get a job and that's just because people were just assuming because you were there that you're this evil, crazy person type thing. Yeah, whatever. I don't. I, they were assuming whatever they wanted, but it was it was difficult. Um, it was almost impossible for me to get an apartment, actually. And I kept applying, but everybody Google's you, and I just kept thinking, like, when? How am I? I just didn't know how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how I was going to be able to take. I just didn't know how I was going to move forward from it. And so, yeah, it, it was definitely a challenge. So how did you move forward from it? 
first I, I focused on myself and getting back to my family and, and healing and making sure that I had clarity on what had happened in the past seven years of my life. And that I also was being honest with myself about how I participated, how I was fooled, how I had been manipulated and the things that I liked as well, because it's like, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You kind of, it's better to kind of go through and piece by piece and figure it out because these things are complex and people's lives are complicated. It's not just black and white. So I had to do a lot of soul searching in that sense. And then I had to focus on, on my health and that included like food and exercise and getting back and getting my muscle back, which I had like totally lost. And that's just, that's taken like a couple of years to rebuild. Mm. So I feel really strong now and I've gotten into boxing quite heavily. It's like my therapy (laughs) (laughs) and I just love being able to just punch the shit out of something when I feel, when I feel like I can't express myself. You got to put Keith's face on the, on the, sparring pads i've put more than keith's face on the sparring pads before in my mind (laughs) and and so that's been huge for me and then also being able to write i wrote a book that is exclusive for audible where i just kind of shared my whole internal process Mm -hmm. like like a like a journal more or less and and then working on this docuseries was incredibly reinvigorating and it just kind of opened my eyes to a world of activism that is very important for me to be involved in and for my own healing. And also just it's like someone said something to me while we were actually doing the docuseries about how like true healing comes from being able to give back the lesson that you've learned. Mm -hmm. And that that's been something that I think has been really helpful for me. Well, even it's like your, your, your grandma, the princess Elizabeth says towards the end where she says, you know, maybe this was your destiny and, and, and you, you came out of this as a better person. Maybe you, you were, everything happens for a reason, that sort of thing. And maybe this is your destiny to be able to, to tell the stories so that other people don't fall into the same trap. I like to look at things like that too. Mm-hmm. I like to see things as having a reason and like having a greater reason, maybe beyond our little selves <laughs> Right. that that is more about our soul and about like our life's purpose. And I like to look at things like that. It makes me feel a lot better about mm-hmm. the experiences that I went through and that they were worth something and that they have a reason and a purpose. But I also know that there's a lot more out there. And I, I think my mom saw a life for me that I didn't see for myself while I was still inside of the group. And so I, I really want to take advantage of that lost time. But like you said too, though, the seven years is also a long time. You pretty much, I mean, you were 19, so you kind of grew up in that cult. So I'm sure there's things you learned from it, both good and bad that you can use for the rest of your life as well. Totally. You know, with the last, last few things. So with the documentary, like, cause I, I have 14 year old teenage daughters twins wait you no 14 year old twin daughters okay you have two twins yeah, twins yeah okay and i want i want them to watch this just to you know so they can see kind of how easy it is to fall into this kind of a trap what are you hoping that people get out of out of your docuseries i hope it's just that mm-hmm. i hope that it's that they that the warning signs and the red flags are clear so that we can protect the people that we love and the people who might be vulnerable or might not have had enough hard knocks in the world to know better. And 
I hope that this docuseries also leaves people with a lot more compassion and that they can see how this could happen to anyone mm. and that, that it doesn't make you wrong or bad or anything, that it just is part of some people's experience. You mentioned that you have a fiance now. How was that for you um, and for him? I mean, you mentioned having a lot of PTSD and all that sort of thing. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, he is, he's the best. And he's a big fan of yours, by oh, the way. Cool. When, when I, yeah, when I told him, he was like, oh my God, Mike, I love that guy. And I was like, yeah, it's going to be fun. That's great. And, um, and so he has, he's just, he's so normal. He's from Philly. He, we met in New York city. He's a chef, which is awesome. Because mm. <laughs> I love to eat and we cook together often. And so he really helped me to just kind of have fun and be normal. And obviously there, there were moments in our relationship where I was resentful of the things that he had had in college or with his friends or the, like the parties and we're the same age. So oftentimes he would tell a story about college and I would be like, where was I that year? Right. I was like, Oh, I was in Nexium, like doing bullshit courses or, and I would feel really angry and like hurt about it. And I had to kind of let that go and just be like, no, it's okay. You didn't, you didn't lose everything. You just didn't have that. But yeah, there, we've had our challenges and he's pretty private. So I've tried to keep him out of the media as much as possible, just out of respect for him. Cause he didn't ask for this. Mm. He asked for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it comes with the territory and he's fully supportive of that. But he also knows that he likes to have, some time away from Nexium. He doesn't associate me with Nexium, and that's kind of like why our relationship works. Mm -hmm. It's interesting too. I'm sure when this movie came out, that you did do a lot of press because of your your lineage and your legacy within Hollywood. You know, Catherine Oxenberg's daughter. I'm sure everyone wanted to talk to you as a result. Oh uh, yeah, and I didn't realize how much uh, interest we were going to generate, <laughs> and so my mom and I ended up doing a lot of the interviews together, which was great, and it was like a real bonding That's experience cool, yeah. for us, like a real bonding. Experience. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. <laughs> so last question for you. So what, what, what do you have in, in the future? What are your plans and, and how do you want to continue to kind of spread this message? Well, I am um, working on a foundation with my mom that's already in existence. It's called the Catherine Oxenberg foundation. And that is there to ensure that there's resources for therapy for anybody who leaves a high control group or a coercive environment. And so that's something that I'm really motivated to build because we just need more. And there's only probably 20 therapists in the U.S. who are qualified to treat people who have left these types of traumas. So there's a lack of resources. And so I'm pretty dedicated to bringing more fundraising and putting together other organizations to just make this work. I want there to be a safety net for people so that they don't come out of a group and then have to be destitute or retreat back into something because they don't have mm. support outside of it. So there's that. I'm, I'm looking to start writing again because I love it. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I'm writing a proposal for book two. Great. So I hope that that goes somewhere and uh, just kind of living my life and rolling with the punches of COVID and all of the glories that come with it. Yeah, right, right. And so we're just we're just trying to figure out what our next move is. Maybe go spend some time with my fiance's family back east. We're we're just trying to we're with everybody else yeah. trying to figure it out day by day. The world is your oyster now. 
And also, too, I read that your mom is like 3,563 in line for the for the throne. <laughs> so like so there's that. <laughs> suddenly she becomes the queen of England. Then you got that going for you, oh too. Oh, my God. Uh, that that I, I don't know if I could handle that after Nexium and the fires and the this. I'm like, no, right. let's everybody just take it easy. I want to just go to a farm and have a homestead or something, better, yeah. make my own. Have my own chicken. Grow your own eggs. <laughs> India, mm-hmm. it's great talk. Simple. Simple, easy. It's great talking to you. And what an amazing story. And, and you're a true survivor and very inspirational. Likewise. Thank you so much. And I hope that uh, your girls can watch the series and, and it, that it's helpful for them too. For sure. I'll, I'll, I'll make them watch it. They watch, all they do is watch YouTube <laughs> anyway. So watch this for a while. <laughs> thank, thank you for you. having me. It was so great to meet Hopefully you. Hopefully get to meet in person one of these days. I know. Fingers crossed. Especially for your fiance. Yeah. Oh my God. He would die. He would die. <laughs> thank you. Right. Bye. Bye. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but... Are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone, as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen.